Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Levi. Eric. Did, did you know that the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men? I wish I had memorized the rest of that so I could join in on this goof. <laughs> well, regardless, we watched Tarantino's Pulp Fiction this week. Levi, 30 seconds or less, give me your brief review of uh, of this of this wonderful film. All right, so... I said Reservoir Dogs was great, and I feel like I'm going to say great for every movie, so instead I'm going to give a review by doing my own Tarantino. I once saw a man key a car in Spain. We were just walking down the road, and this guy with this girl is just walking down. He's like a middle-aged guy, and he just holds his key out, thumb behind it, drags it along the side of a car that's just parked on the side of the road, and just keeps walking. No, nothing about like, fuck this guy and his car. Just kick. nonchalant did it and kept walking. Wow. That's my little anecdote because this movie is full of little anecdotes. That's what I thought okay. of this film. It was beautiful. It is full of little anecdotes. I mean, I, so my, my viewing of this film, last week we talked about Reservoir Dogs. And I said it's a you know it's a great film it's an impressive first effort from a writer director but it's a little rough around the edges I feel like and I, I know that some people are are not agreeing with me because I'm reading the forums right now but I do feel like Pulp Fiction is a nearly perfect film like this movie has everything all the style all the all of the um, all of the interesting shit that Tarantino does. That was reflected in Reservoir Dogs, but all of those edges are smoothed out into like this nice, perfect uh, kind of sphere. And I, I hate to use the word perfect, especially for a movie or or a piece of art, because it's it's a little bit of an arbitrary term. But th- I think feel like this is like up there with like Back to the Future is one of the most airtight movies that I've seen. Um, that's how I feel about it. It definitely has, I think, stood the test of time for sure. And I mm-hmm. think what's really nuts is that. It was such a killer film for the time. Like, I mean, yeah. Ebert said it was, you know, the top film of the 90s. And I think that I wish I had a better, you know, if I studied film, this would, could be, I think, a class on its own. The effect that this film has had on storytelling in yeah. mainstream film since the 90s. Because it is, and we still have the problems, I think, that have always existed and will always exist in cinema in the blockbuster film that has the three parts with the same um, trajectory. But I think this film has encouraged and at the time was prolific in its just ability to forget to be so independent. I think that it was the beauty of, and I'm curious to see over the, you know, full span of Tarantino's life. Cause he says he's, he wants to do like 10 movies and retire whether or not that happens. We'll see, but yeah, you know, can he keep his kind of faith to film and to <laughs> these unique storylines? I mean, it's this movie, you, you mentioned it at the beginning. This movie has a lot of anecdotes in it and so does Reservoir Dogs. They both have a lot of anecdotes in it, but 
when I'm talking about smoothing out the edges a little bit, uh, the anecdotes in this movie all have to do with character or driving the story forward. There were anecdotes in Reservoir Dogs, like the you know the 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 glaring one that that comes to mind is the like a virgin speech at the very beginning that Quentin Tarantino gives. That speech doesn't really move the story forward. It doesn't really develop a character because Mr. Brown dies almost immediately in the movie. It's like one of the only things that Tarantino says in the whole film. Um, but it's like an interesting thing. And, I, you know, it, this I feel like this shows that jump of maturity as a writer for Tarantino. It's like we're going to get out of these like little interesting anecdotes and we're going to still utilize them. But we're going to use them all to move the story forward. You know, talking about a Royale with cheese, which reflects... Tarantino's own experience in Amsterdam as he was writing this movie that just gives you some backstory on Vincent Vega who is a huge part of this movie so it develops like this guy has a little bit of a uh, foreigner's view for America because he's been in the Netherlands for for a while you know so all those interesting little anecdotes actually mean something and I feel like that's that adds to the uh the freshness and the relevance for that, for, for the movie. I mean, this movie's two and a half hours long. Did it seem like a two and a half hour movie to you, Levi? At having seen it so many times, um, mm-hmm. I do find myself, I found myself at points being like, oh, I forgot. Like, cause people have brought up in the forums about, uh, you know, Butch being the one that keys Vega's car. And that puts yeah. a little bit of context in between, the timing of his scene when he goes to buy heroin. Um, and I was asking, I was, I couldn't remember his car being keyed at all. And so when I was watching it, it was one of those <laughs> scenes that like, Oh, that's right. He talks about this just, you know, momentarily in right. that particular cut. Yeah. When and, he's buying heroin. And there are just little moments like that throughout the movie where it's like, when do we get back to the diner? Like I, when does this movie, Oh, (laughs) that's right. We have to go all the way back to the apartment and then they get, and why is Marvin in the car? That's never clear. (laughs) That's been like, why do they take Marvin with them? They kill everybody else, but why does Marvin get to go with them? And it's not a good thing for Marvin, obviously, but, um, but it it does now, but I feel like the first time I watched this, uh, two and a half hours didn't even blink the entire time that I saw it. So I think, and I wish that I could go back and pick my brain the first time I had seen this. I don't even remember where I was when I saw this. I must've still been in high school, probably with you. Yeah. Yeah. I was in high school when I, when I first saw it. Um, I, I, I kind of remember watching it for the first time and, Specifically, my my mind being blown was when, uh, w- at the very end of the movie, when they cut to Tim Roth in in the booth, and it's Ringo and Honey Bunny sitting there, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" That was from the very beginning of the movie. I completely forgot that that even happened. I mean, it's just watching it with fresh eyes. Uh, I wish I could go back and do that again because there's so many great reveals. As we talked about it last week with Reservoir Dogs, like. It'd be great to be able to go back and not know who the undercover cop was and watch it with fresh eyes again. So it's kind of a great thing with Tarantino movies in that the first watching is so interesting and, you know, catches you off guard and has these real big surprise moments. But then you can still go back and watch the movie over and over and over and over again and still get a lot of entertainment and enjoyment out of it. That speaks a lot 
to his prowess as a writer and director. And by the way, this is just two movies into his career. So it's like I said, it's just impressive. It is interesting. This movie starts exactly the same way as Reservoir Dogs in terms of setting. So it starts in a diner, conversation in the diner. Then we go to a title sequence. Then we go to two guys wearing black and white, wearing black suits and white shirts in a car together. It's like the exact same progression as the first movie, but from there it completely diverges. I just thought that was really interesting watching these two movies in context to one another. I saw that a quote about um, his reuse of some of his of those moments, like the 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 Mexican standoff, mm-hmm. and he was in one of the quotes from him. He was saying, "You know, every." great western ended with a shootout that didn't make them bad movies like that was kind of what you expected and that's okay like especially Absolutely. when it's something good like that's that's all right I actually and i think he does that really yeah well. I, I completely i didn't even see that that you're right it ends with the ends with that mexican standoff with that three-way gun gun pointing it ends a little differently but yeah same same deal man when samuel jackson shouts at John Travolta to shut the. F- <laughs> yeah. I had that as I think my ringtone for like a week, and it was a great <laughs> week <laughs> until it went off in church. <laughs> uh, other things with this movie, you know, last week we talked about. I've really tried. To, I've really been trying to pay attention to the music, and God damn it, Quentin Tarantino uses practical music almost exclusively throughout these two films. In that all of the music that is played is either on the radio, it's in the background of the diner, it's in the background of the bar, but it's actually a set piece. Like, when you think about music in films, like, Quintertino doesn't do montages, like, he doesn't do, uh, you know, at least in his first two films, no montages, no, like, backup, just regular background tracks. If people are outside and there's no radio or stereo around, there's not going to be any music. This is like this is amazing. I, th- I think that it really does make the songs that he chooses poignant because they are part of the set. They are set dressing. They are not uh, separate or removed from the film. They're inside the film. I was kind of astounded because I really wanted to take a look at it and make sure. Like even the the iconic um, two songs in the opening title sequence to Pulp Fiction, they're being played on the radio in the car that Jules and Vincent are in. We and- cut to the car and and the music's in the background. And that was one I had in my notes where I was like, oh, this, you know, the first song, not practical because there was no, you know, yeah, it's just cut in the diner. But then I heard the radio change. And I went, oh, you clever yep. son of a bitch. I, I did the exact same thing. I was like, huh, okay, so this one's not. And it's like, and I was like, oh, shit. Damn it, Tarantino. You did it again. That diner, by the way, that. So that was something that I was keeping track of the whole movie, and I want to talk about Jackrabbit Slims. I think that's a little bit of a longer conversation. The diner, because you mentioned the diner background music, and there go my notes. Um, (laughs) They, uh, the bet I was no, because I've been trying to pay attention to when he does not use music, and those tend to be his tense scenes. It's kind of the opposite Mm -hmm. of like Sergio Leone, like. All of the yeah. scenes where the music, the guitar, Mexican guitar just kicks in, and you're wondering, um, you know, who's going to shoot first. He kind of generally uh, alleviates a scene with kind of the upbeat yeah. music. That's how you know, yeah. you know, that things are kind of chill, at least so far in the instances we've seen. But that diner music, 
is just so low in the background. And I was like, oh, he's building tension. No, wait, what? And I paused the movie thinking that it was like, is that my neighbor's music? Like, it's so quiet. <laughs> and it's shocking how much that sets. I mean, it really does. In such a tense scene, there's kind of this like, it reminds you that while these villains in this fantastic situation yeah are still kind of based in the real world that the yeah the diner and the people around them are for all intents and purposes reality yeah they're they're pieces of this like it's it's as important as the props it's as important as you know the location it's this all of that the music is just a a piece of it and it it really does create these little slices of life you know there's there's one scene in Marcelo Wallace's bar uh, when he's talking to Butch and telling him to throw the fight, there is music going on in the background. And I was like, is this practical music? Is this not practical music? But then they cut outside to Jules and, and uh, Vincent walking in, and the music cuts out. And then as they walk back into the bar, the music comes back. So it's like, yeah, this is practical music. It's it's all just pieces of creating that atmosphere for the dialogue to take place. And you know, the dialogue is, of course, always at the forefront in these movies. Um, let's go back to the beginning of the film. I just wanted to mention uh, one of the things about the black suits. I was watching an interview last week uh, with uh, Chris Penn uh, for Reservoir Dogs, and he had mentioned this. He said that the black suits on these guys are because if you're going to be a gangster and commit crimes, in Tarantino's <laughs> idea, you wear a black suit uh, because... Uh, there's like a million people wear black suits and you can't just say, oh yeah, it's a guy in a black suit and that was who did it. Although I'm like, really? Are there that many people wearing black suits around? <laughs> but maybe in Tarantino's universe there are. And it's we're also talking about 1994 here. so Well, it's, you know, it's I think they use that same excuse in the transporter. Like that explains his specific car is it's like the most common high-end mm-hmm. car. It's an, yeah, everybody has an Audi. I mean, Transporter, Pulp Fiction, practically the same movie. Practically the same. Um, (laughs) uh, So, yeah, the other thing that I noticed about this film that really stood out to me, we talked about it last week with Reservoir Dogs because Reservoir Dogs is a little bit more of a stage play. And I think that it lends itself to this, but he carries this over into Pulp Fiction, and that is long takes. Tarantino is kind of a master of the long take. Um, like really, really like minute long takes, two minute long takes. There's not a lot of cuts in the movie and it works to the point that when he does do a fast cut, it's effective from a stylistic perspective because you're like, man, I've been used to just kind of being a fly on the wall in these rooms, just kind of sitting here and watching the action. And I I think that what, what that does is it really does, it's a testament to his dial, the way that he writes his dialogue. Because it's so interesting that you just want to sit there and stare at it instead of having to cut, like, Vincent talks, and we cut to Vincent, and then Jules talks, and we cut to Jules. No, we're just going to stick a camera in the car, and the guys are going to talk for three minutes, and you're going to like it. And you do! Like, this this is really, really pretty amazing. Um, so that's something I'm going to be watching moving forward is, is the length of the takes, and who knows, I might even time some in the future. That's a really good good idea, because those are, yeah. you know, those are such challenging shots for the actors and for an editor. Um, and I know that, didn't he have the same editor for most of his films? I believe so. I believe so. I think I she just passed away. I think Django Unchained was like one of the first ones that she didn't, was 
occurred after she so i would like to watch for that as well mm-hmm. what happens um you're talking about the conversations the dialogue what i find interesting and i'm curious if you feel this way because uh, you know you read about that's one of the things that always reviewers highlight for his films is oh the dialogue is is odd and long but it always reminds me of how like we talk like especially you know vincent and jules in the car you know vincent's been Mm -hmm. out of town for a while but they're in the car and they're just shooting the shit yep and it sounds like a human conversation it's not yeah you know a typical movie dialogue it feels like and it seems more real and i always i find it humorous when a reviewer highlights it as oh it's quirky dialogue no isn't this how (laughs) people converse back and forth yeah and and it's i think that's why it's effective i I meant you know as i i'm just gonna go back to this well it's effective because it is that real world dialogue but it exposes so much about the characters and the plot their whole conversation in the car it establishes vincent as being you know out of the country and then coming back into the country and then they talk about how Marcel is through. Uh, I can't remember the. I can't remember his name. Tony Rocky Horror. Yeah, to, Tony Rockahara. They he throws him out of a fourth story window, which sets the whole stage for this date that he has with, uh, with Mia. Because now there's a huge tension over it. He can't fuck up the date at all, or else he might just get thrown out of a window. Um, and then that carries throughout that entire story. I think. It's it's great because they're just shooting the shit, but they are setting everything up. It's it's the idea that you know everything that your characters say should either be character development or moving the story forward. That's Kurt Vonnegut's uh, rules to a short story, and Quentin Tarantino's meeting that to a T here. Everything that they say follows those two rules: building character, moving the story forward. And that wasn't necessarily there, I thought, in Reservoir Dogs, but it's there in Pulp Fiction. It is strong, and I really like it. There's only one scene, I think, where the where it doesn't really work, and where that doesn't really happen, and it's at the very end of the movie. Uh, and that's when they're talking about the pork in the diner. They're just, no. they're just shooting the shit about pork. That doesn't really add anything, but I'm I like, all right, does. we're so close to the end, who cares? Because it's... Because, you know, in it makes Jules's um sort of odd faith which you don't really have you know defined at any point in the film um but it does hint at judaism you know and the not yeah. eating pork so i think it adds it makes his um belief system and what he's you know he's announced that he's retiring and he, that they had seen, witnessed a miracle and he never puts kind of he just god that's all you hear so I always kind of chalked it up to, is he Jewish? Like, you know, it, it never, it makes me <laughs> well, wonder he's where he's using an Old he... Testament uh, verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe he's Jewish. I don't think he is, but. I think he's more just a, this is like him becoming a monk of his own. Spiritual. Religious design, because he is a cold-blooded killer. <laughs> let's not, let's not, uh, let's not get away from that. Yeah, but he's trying real hard, Ringo. He's trying real hard, man. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of Big Kahuna Burger? I want one so bad. I really, I do love Hawaiian burgers. Like when you put a pineapple and like a fried egg on a burger. Uh, yeah. I can't do the pineapple, but I could do like a spam patty for sure. <laughs> like there's a there's a there's a place here in Seattle that makes uh, spam sliders, and they are really good. 
So that's all. That's that's my idea of a big Kahuna burger. Is that it's got like spam in the patty. <laughs> that is a tasty people burger. Outside of the West Coast, like when you get to the middle of the country, I find that you get a lot less spam. Like people here just haven't tried it. I've been like, how have you never had? And I think it's just a West Coast more likely to end up trying spam. With the what I find humorous about the Big Kahuna Burger is, you know, it's this oh he's sticking it to the man without his product placement, but then you know Jules like lists off where'd you get your yeah. burger from, and then he <laughs> lists major chains, and then he lists major soda, asking about the soda like right. It's kind I, of a funny back and forth that he does. Well, I think that it works directly with what you were talking about in terms of like these are outrageous things happening in a real world context. That's the way he sets this up. So Big Kahuna Burger is kind of an outrageous idea. <laughs> I can't really think about like a chain of restaurants called Big Kahuna Burger, but it works in the context of this film because he's still he's grounding it in Wendy's and Burger King and McDonald's. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I always like the idea. Like One of the things I loved to do when I was a kid was like come up with fake businesses. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, I love the idea of, like, why not, man? This is your world. Build it the way you want. I had this idea for a burger joint called Putt-Putt Burger, where it was like, <laughs> where it, it was like a, a fast food restaurant, like a Burger King, but instead of a play place, it was a miniature golf course. So you could go with your family and Putt-Putt, and then, uh, and then it would have, like, characters like Ronald McDonald, except they would all be Australian, kangaroo, dingo, all that, you know. Were you obsessed Putt-Putt with burger. Australia before you met Jesse? Yeah. Totally. Okay. Just curious. <laughs> anyway, we're getting uh, a little Sorry, bit personal here. Let's go back to the film. <laughs> uh, I do love the way that Samuel L. Jackson commands the scene when he's in there with all of the you know dorky dudes. <laughs> They're eating their burger. Like he walks in and they know that they're in ton of shit, and he's being like cordial. And polite, and then like snaps immediately and shoots a dude. Like he is terrifying in this scene because he goes in soft spoken. He doesn't go in guns a blazing. He like just walks in, and you could tell that like he just in, kind of enjoys this shit. He like enjoys relishing the final moments of these guys' lives because he knows that they're in his hands and he could do basically whatever he wants over this course of time. So he's just gonna fuck with them psychologically for a little while before he lights him up it's crazy man like he he commands a scene um and the performances in this movie in general they people just kill it in this movie they just do a great job the casting is phenomenal and yeah from everything i've read you know it sounds like with the exception i think of uma thurman like everybody that he put the script in front of wanted a part most wanted to play vincent vega because they thought that he was the main character uh-huh. um Although I would argue that there is no main character in this Me whole too. thing. There's a main character in each story. But I feel like the th- three stories are actually fairly separate from one another. So do you have a crazy fan theory about what this film is <laughs> in Tarantino's uh, I don't, man. I don't have a crazy checklist. fan theory this week. No, I don't. I, I just, you know, this movie is so unique and it pops up. Um it pops up as itself, like in the in nineteen ninety four, and it's it comes in as tour de force, and it like just steamroll cinema. I mean, I I can't, I I just didn't have time to 
to put together something stupid about this because the movie's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. Hard what do you think's be... in the brief? What do you think's what, in the briefcase? Oh man, we're gonna get into that MacGuffin. I have always been a fan of the Mark. So it's a convoluted and really a de- the the soul Marcellus Wallace's soul theory. I really yeah. enjoy because it glows. You don't see it. He's got the Band-Aid on the back of his neck, which, you know, in a lot of cultures, that's where your soul is removed from. Mm-hmm. Even though I think he was just wearing a Band-Aid on the back of his head for shaving it, according to someone in the forum. Yeah, that's what um, the forum said, yeah. So I think, despite all of that, I think it is one of those great moments in film where it's so vague, you can come up with your own idea, and whatever it actually might be intentionally, probably not as good as what you've Especially the internet has cooked up at this point. But that's what I love about it. I love that he leaves something open-ended in this film. The only thing that you know about whatever's in that briefcase is that it's beautiful. It is beautiful. That's that's what Ringo says at the end of the movie. And even Vincent is caught off guard when he opens it up. Uh, you know, the the lock combination on the briefcase is 666. Oh, yeah. So I that think does... that also that <laughs> kind of goes along the... with it, but... Yeah, it's. I I think it's. I think it's best to leave that open ended. Some people also think that it, it, they are the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs, but uh, I don't know. I don't really prescribe to that theory. I think it's a li- something a little more mystical. Want a little magic in my Tarantino? Yeah. Are we waiting for his fantasy film? Maybe <laughs> no. after Hateful Eight. Oh, I'm not waiting for that. No, I'm not. <laughs> I think he'd make a fantastic. I don't know that he would do anything like. The sword, the sandals, and sorcery that we would hope for, but maybe I mean he'd have to nail the dialogue. It's like, even his stuff in like the eighteen hundreds. Is it totally like set in that period? I think it's hard to to nail like surf dialogue. I think I think it works better as like a uh, a parody film on like Funny or Die. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might, might jive a little better. That's a good point that, you know, most of his films don't leave uh, the the state's kind of modern day mm-hmm. in, in terms of style aesthetically and in terms of tone, even for how they talk in Django and probably in A Hateful Eight from the commercials. and yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, and he and he's definitely he paints his own universe. So, um, so I do like the the bar scene here as we cut to Butch. The the it's really the beginning of the story of Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. Um, when we cut to Butch, and he's just sitting there for like three minutes, and all it is is a shot of Bruce Willis listening to Marcellus Wallace. It's almost a, a photograph. And yet it's it's in, it's really it draws you in and you I don't I didn't sit there like looking at my watch being like man this scene is taking really long and nothing's in it like he, Quintertino is kind of he's putting it all on the table and saying hey man you're just gonna sit here and listen to my dialogue and and, and deal with it you're gonna listen to Ving Rhames say my stuff and it's gonna sound really cool um, so just another long take thing um, but then we go to the house where Vincent Vega. Excuse me, where Vincent Vega is buying heroin. I feel like heroin was a very 90s drug. Do you feel that way? I'm kind of surprised that they went with heroin versus like cocaine. I felt like 
I thought cocaine was kind of the the rich man's, and maybe that's why it is heroin is to show that despite his life of crime, Vincent Vega <laughs> is a more mod, a man of modest drug tastes. Well, and, and Mia's a coke person. She's into the coke. Yeah, that's why she accidentally snorts. I think that the the premise there is that she accidentally snorts the heroin because she thinks it's cocaine because it's in a baggie and it's not in a balloon. Yeah, no, I got I got that part. I, that is, yeah, I'm just the. It just seemed an odd, and maybe it was just solely because you know they had the GODs, mm-hmm. what looks like coke outside yeah. the right bag. Um, yeah, but yeah, the drug thing. I wish I knew more about drugs than. <laughs> The little that the wire taught me. <laughs> really, do you though? No, that's true. You're right. There was a lot I learned from this movie. Like I remember, like yeah. the tongue ring thing. I did not know until watching this movie that that's what the tongue ring was about. Oh, you're so sweet, Levi. Sweet little Levi. <laughs> well, this is like 18 year old Levi. I was like, oh, that's what that's yes, about. That's still pretty, still pretty sweet, little Levi. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But but the thing about this movie, and the reason why I brought up heroin, is that I feel like this movie is very 90s. Like, and it's so cool because it doesn't use 90s music. It uses 70s music. But it's so stylistically 90s in a lot of ways. Like, the fashion and the pretenses. And it really is, I guess it goes right along with what you were talking about, Levi. It sets the stage for a real world with all of these crazy things happening i love that cops never show up in this world <laughs> yeah like i don't really think jules has anything to worry about driving around with a with a back wind with a back windshield covered in blood because there are no <laughs> police officers anywhere to be found well they're already on the street when that happens and the fact they're like we we should get off the street before someone like how did somebody not already notice yeah i know like if, the, if you were driving behind them like wouldn't you be like uh what <laughs> <laughs> Maybe grab a license plate number. It's Tallulah Heights, man. Um, but I, I, I do think that the interesting thing about this movie that I realized, and I've, I've kind of come to this realization over the last two movies, is that um, you know when we talk about the divisive dialogue that people have in Tarantino's movies, when we talk about the excessive violence, Tarantino does this all. And he said it time and time again. This is for entertainment purposes. This, this is movie violence. This is movie dialogue. This is not meant to reflect real violence or real dialogue. Some people, I'm sure, have a, have a hard time separating those two things. But I'm really trying to look at this in that context because that's what he's said time and time again is his perspective. So these people are, like, in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, for the most part, they're terrible human beings. <laughs> Like, they are not good people. But the fact of the matter is, bad people are interesting. Bad people are interesting to watch. And these people are bad in interesting ways, which makes them even more interesting to watch. Um, Because you know what? We don't get to do this stuff in our daily lives. Uh, These people kind of, we can live vicariously through these people from a psychological standpoint. Because, you know what? I'm probably not going to, you know, go into a room and, and gun down a lot of people. But it's an interesting situation. It would def if I were in that situation. It's something I tell my grandkids about, maybe. What? Um, this is you know, because I want to scar them for life. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, these were these are the stories. When bad things happen, that's where stories come from. And bad people are more interesting, I think, on cinema than good people. Um, you know, that's a that's a kind of a blanket hypothesis, and 
doesn't really have a ton of evidence to back it up. But I, I do think that that's why. Because I ask myself, I'm like, these people are awful. Why do I find them so interesting and likable in some cases? And it's like, because they are bad. I don't get to see this every day. Well, I'm getting. I think watching people change is, yeah, a a beautiful thing. I always one of the reasons I think film is such a a powerful medium is because it's a story told from a perspective. Generally, from you know, even though the camera kind of assumes it's third person, the story is following behind somebody. It is a first person story, mm-hmm. and it reinforces our notion that the world is our, you know, that we are experiencing our own story. It, huh. I feel like in a way, this is my, this is Levi's weird philosophy, movie philosophy. Like in it. that it, it reinforce, it lets us know, Hey, I am not crazy with how I view the world, how this feels like it's my story. Other mm-hmm. people are experiencing it. And it's very easy for us to then take, our perspective the way that we see the world and to assume the role a role in a film (laughs) and i think tarantino's especially good at this because there are multiple characters in a scene you know it's harder to find one so you have kind of choices you know you talk about uh minorities and women as you know not as lead figures in a film and Mm -hmm. you know it's much harder for people to get into the movie where it's a white guy every time except i mean we have the advantage in this and since because we're white guys, check your privilege. <laughs> but Tarantino has you know multiple characters in a scene. I think it's easy easier to assume a role. You have sort of options. I think to you know you talked about your favorite character in Reservoir Dogs. You have multiples to choose from. It's not a Vin Diesel film where it's like, well, Vin Diesel, that's my guy. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the role I like to assume. Right. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, your life is the longest movie you'll ever watch. Put it that way. Is that is that your philosophy, basically? I'm kind of hoping it doesn't end in a Mexican standoff, but <laughs> hey, man, that's exciting. You <laughs> got to go true. out some way. <laughs> I hope there's some practical music there as well. <laughs> spice in it, spice up the scene. Well, speaking of practical music, this is actually the first time that there is not practical music. We're coming up on it. This is when Vincent takes heroin and drives to Mia's house. That's the first time that there's not practical music, that it's actually just background music. But I think you could make the argument that that music is playing in his head. Or you could also make the music... Yeah, you could make... I guess you could make the music that's playing in his car. But I think it's... I I got it because it's very, like, dreamy music that it's actually just kind of playing in his head, and it illustrates that. In hindsight, Uh, was the... The scene... When he's driving in his car, the... I don't know what the professional term for it is, but like the backdrop. When oh, yeah. You're shooting through the car. And isn't it like a weird, like it's an oldie. It's made to look not real. And and I was thinking to myself, okay, this is probably because we're looking, we're experiencing this scene through Vincent Vega high on heroin. Um, so we're listening to the music that's going along in his head and we're seeing the world in a little bit of a... Uh, you know, a little bit of a wash and it, and it doesn't look real. And so that's how I interpreted it. But then later when we're in the car with Esmeralda Villalobos, same exact thing. Yeah. You caught this too. And that's the reason I wasn't watching. I wasn't thinking about it during Vincent's scene, but when we got to Esmeralda, I was like, why is the background just (laughs) blatantly uh, cartoonish? It looked like they drug up one from, you know, the 1960s that they'd use 
behind a car scene. So right. a weird quirk for sure. And and when we're driving around with Vincent and Jules, it's completely real world shots, which is interesting. And I also, you know, a little tidbit here, uh, Quentin Tarantino directed one scene in Sin City. It's a scene where Clive Owen is driving and Benicio Del Toro is in the passenger seat with the gun shot through his eye. And apparently they tried to shoot that. Quentin Tarantino wanted to shoot that in a real car on a real street. Uh, and they tried it and it didn't work. And then he did. And then he went back and shot it in the studio. So I always kind of thought that he wanted to shoot all of these car scenes in a real car on a real street. But he twice in this movie, he shoots them on a, on a soundstage. Um, so I don't know. Maybe that's something to think about. Like, why does he do that? Let's move on, though. Let's go. Let's go to Jackrabbit Slims here. Is this the coolest place ever, Levi? It's the most fun you can have without a time machine. I think is the tag. <laughs> I wrote it down because I had just I had never noticed it before, but I was trying to watch for kind of the small things. Um, where's it in my notes? Second page. Yeah. The be- the next best thing to a time machine. That's Jackrabbit Slims <laughs> byline. I love it, man. This is this goes. It's kind of like Big Kahuna Burger, but blown up. Like this is Quentin Tarantino's dream restaurant. <laughs> it's so cool. I love it, man. I mean, this place could never ever be made. Like the booths alone would cost you like two hundred thousand dollars. You'd have to buy all these classic cars and then restore them and then retrofit them into booths. Like that's not gonna happen. But but this place is awesome. I love the Ed Sullivan guy. Like he kills it. And I love that they threw Steve Buscemi in this scene. Yep, just uh, in the background. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever noticed that that was Steve Buscemi until this. I knew that he was in the film somewhere. Yeah. Because it's one of those ones where it's like, oh, he's in this. I was like, where is he? Um, <laughs> but as soon as he walked up this time, since Reservoir Dogs was so recent, I went, oh, no shit. There. Yep. <laughs> this... as, we t- as we said, he, he's probably the protagonist of Reservoir Dogs. It's great that Quentin Tartito, you know, at least at least gets him in the film a little bit. I assume that, you know, since he did such a great job in Reservoir Dogs that he maybe had a scheduling conflict or something, so he couldn't be in, in Pulp Fiction, but I don't know. He actually, I don't think he's actually been in any other Tarantino films. He's such a big part of Reservoir Dogs, though. It's kind of... I'd love to see him go back to that well. Um, Fox Force 5. Fox Force 5, man. That's, or uh, Kill Bill. Yeah, pretty much it's Kill Bill. <laughs> So cool. There's there's a few Kill Bill like precursors in this movie, and now watching it in retrospect, you get that, you get that, um, you know, you get that that wisdom of the future. But it's it's pretty cool to to see those call forwards. Also, five dollar shake doesn't sound that bad today, <laughs> right? I I think there's a burger place in town that does five dollar shakes, and I I would assume a shake would be about five. dollars I always make point. that joke with Liz, and she never appreciates it. My, Although a five dollar shake, she looks at me, kind of glares at me, really. Cause she knows what I'm doing. Although Zach, uh, Zach sent us an email and he said that a five dollar shake with inflation is actually an eight dollar shake. So it was a big shake, though. Like I, it seemed yeah. like a fair price. And I would she got a restaurant shake, like that would have a little bit of a higher price. And it's then the like metal a metal thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you you should always get the metal thing. I feel like I've been to places and had a shake, and they keep that to themselves. I don't know oh, what they man. do with it. Drink if you the get other the metal, half. if you if you don't get the metal thing, you're eating at the wrong place, dude. I'm not eating a Jackrabbit Slims, that's for sure. <laughs> Can we? So you want to talk about practical music? This yep. scene has they use practical music like uh, almost like it was uh, what's the 
term when they like you know they're in the studio and they watch it and they kind of time the music with the scene is there mm-hmm. a name for that was it composed i don't know um anyway you know there's a lot of movies that do that like the rising tension in a horror movie and it's just you know somebody kind of plinking away this is using actual songs and it times up so well with the the moments of the scene the lonesome town behind uh when they talk about amsterdam and then mm-hmm. when the conversation changes to fox force five the song changes over to kind of a beach tune uh-huh and then the pause when travolta has a sip of the milkshake and like sits back the song the next song starts up this kind of like this little guitar bit when he says like that's a pretty good milkshake like comes in and just it's beautiful it's taking these songs that are you know regular songs and they're just you know i don't know if they played in the background or if it's pure like in the editing bay they just happen to line it up and they're just like counting off the scene somehow and they just try and get it close but it's super fantastic and you really have to i rewound this scene two or three times just to be like all right what's where did this song come in because if you have to really like back up and watch because otherwise you just it lines up and you don't notice what you're like oh the song changed but what was the beat that it changed on i was something to look for yeah this whole scene and then it ends with the dance the beautiful dance. (laughs) i know get get john travolta back on the dance floor just like saturday night fever it's great, yeah. Um, uh, and it, it you, you mentioned Lonesome Town, yeah. Lonesome Town, interesting. It's a, it's a Ricky Nelson song, and they had Ricky Nelson impersonator up there the song before singing it. So I think the implication is that he sings that song live right after he sings the like uh, one, two, three, four that that song. You know the one, <laughs> two, three, four song. Yeah, that song. Down on the floor. Um, <laughs> let's move forward a little bit. Uh, so. Dude, John Travolta kills it. By the way, in this movie, I just want to say that he kills uh, it in this movie. Best John Travolta, like best John Travolta I've ever seen in a movie. In best this movie. comeback from Look Who's Talking Now I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, also, Christopher Walken kills it. Oh, <laughs> kills it. Like one of the most memorable like three minute performances in a movie. <laughs> He's so good. Um, but like we said, this is interesting chatter. That completely motivates, boom, the whole rest of the the whole rest of the the second story. Like at the beginning, Jules and Vert are talking about, uh, you know, how Marcellus Wallace will basically kill, uh, or try to kill Vincent if he tries to do anything with Mia. That sets up the tension for the rest of that story. That at the beginning of the Gold Watch, we set up the tension for the Gold Watch. We know a hundred percent. Yeah, dude, he's got to get the watch, man. We know why he got. The, we know why he has to get the watch. We know why it's important to him. And um, despite the absurdity of that that story, like the story is yeah. so goofy when you get like, and I hid this hunk of metal up my ass for two years, and you're like, this is a great. <laughs> but then he's like, did you get my dad's watch? And you're like, oh shit, she forgot the watch. Yep. You know that's the only thing that he really needed. Um. How did you feel about Fabian in this in this scene, uh, Butch's Butch's girlfriend? Because we got some hate on the forums about her character. I I thought she was good, but what did I you think, think? That their chemistry is weird, and I've always mm-hmm. thought that the scenes with Bruce Willis and the gal 
with Fabian um, mm-hmm. always feel odd, and I'm sure it's an attempt to make them feel you know, to kind of show the dichotomy of Butch going from murdering in the ring to being like, oh, he's such a a gentle lover. <laughs> Yeah, but it does, and then it throws does a feel... TV when it when something doesn't go this way. <laughs> but yeah, I just it's it feels weird. I don't have the distaste for it. I think it's mm-hmm. an interesting kind of shift in the tone of the movie. Um, I don't know that yeah. it works to its full effect. I can understand people not liking it, but I don't personally sweat it. It's she's not in the film that much. Plus, I I like her, man. I think she kills it. Like, I like how she, particularly the scene that stands out to me is when he's being like, did you get the watch? Did you get it? Yes or no? And she's sitting there and she's trying to look calm, but her eyes are just welling up with tears and getting bigger and bigger and wetter and wetter. And she's like, I got it. I got it. And you can tell she's just hoping that she did. Um she kills it. I, I feel like she does a great job, but um, I, I understand not a lot of people. I mean, there's some people who don't, but um, I thought her performance was great. Well, and it's um, an odd moment of discomfort in such a yeah violent movie. <laughs> like here's the <laughs> one is. here's the one character that's probably not deserving of their fate hmm. in the sense of Butch's violence. Um, hmm. Not that we ever get a sense that he beats or anything, but. She's kind of wrapped, you know, it's very dangerous, and she really seems out of her element. Yeah, that's a mention. She's like, she knows that gangsters are coming to kill them. <laughs> like, it's like... And everybody else in the movie, you're like, well, they probably deserve it. Yeah, exactly. Like, how did she get wrapped up in all of this? Um, did you notice that... So, uh, you know, Butch goes to his apartment to get the, the watch. He kills Vincent when he's in there. Um and then when he's driving away, Marcellus is crossing the street with donuts and coffee. I think he was taking the donuts and coffee to Vincent. Like that's, that's oh, kind of like the only... they were both at Butch's apartment. I don't think I ever yeah. put that together. That they were both waiting there for him makes perfect yeah. sense. They're both waiting there, and he, and Butch and Marcellus goes out to get some coffee and donuts, and then yeah, uh, Vincent takes a dump and then gets killed. I really love uh, Davy Mack on the forum says. It doesn't really bother me, but either these bathrooms have the best insulation on the planet, which, <laughs> as an architect, I can tell you, we do insulate bathrooms so the sound doesn't travel as much. Uh-huh. Or Vincent Somebody is wants really to hear the farts, man. Yeah, you don't want to hear your neighbors peeing. I lived in an apartment for <laughs> two years where I could hear my neighbors pee, and it drove me insane every night. But he's yeah, really into that book. He is into the book. The other thing that I thought was funny is that um, that Butch wipes the gun down. When he leaves it at the apartment. I'm like, so really they're going to go to the cops? (laughs) I guess maybe maybe if if a neighbor heard the noise comes in, they call the cops. And I guess the cops would be after Butch then. But but I was like, yeah, I don't think Marcellus is going to go to the cops. Plus, yeah. Anyway, whatever. Um, I do like, you know, when we get into... When we get into the pawn shop, that Butch is using his hands as weapons and as effective weapons. Like, he uses them twice because he's a boxer and he killed somebody in the ring. Like, this guy's got, you know, rocket arms. He's going to punch you in the ha- face and you're going to feel it. Like, he basically knocks out Marcellus by punching him in the face like four or five times. And then when he gets free down in the dungeon, he punches the gimp and knocks him out in one shot. And it's like, 
we know it, man. We know that this is a guy who could knock somebody out with one punch. So just cool things like that. It's like, of course, this character would use his, his hands as weapons. Can we just pause for a second on the weirdness? And I've never really questioned uh-huh. it until last night. What the hell is with the pawn shop with a dungeon below yeah. that has like a gimp in a box just on like a Tuesday? Yep. What the hell? It doesn't make any like it's the weirdest part. Like everything else has kind of this grounding in a weird reality, but this is like this is almost a metaphor for you know we're talking about the reality of Tarantino's films. It's like take step down, you know, eight feet to the basement level of a Tarantino film, and it's nuts. <laughs> it's crazy down there. Things are insane. Yeah. Don't go downstairs. I just I want it. It's just this strange moment. And I've never questioned it, but <laughs> well, the thing that I like about this whole this whole second story, the the watch, is that it's basically like this weird justice based morality play. It's this idea that your enemy can become your friend if put in the right situation, and like <laughs> a couple of things here that I think are kind of. Uh, crazy at the end because yeah they start off you know um basically butch does something knowingly that is going to get these people after him the people once they understand that they start coming after him they go from friends to mortal enemies immediately then he goes back he kills one of them and then they get put in a situation where they're both in dire straits and then butch comes back and basically saves marcellus i think he saves him because he knows that if Marcellus gets out of there, it's going to be a crazy manhunt, and this is an opportunity to, to you know, clear the air. Um, either that, or there's just an innate sense of justice in this guy that he's like, I'm not going to let this guy go out like this. I think there's but, an innate sense of justice in mm-hmm. most of Tarantino's stuff, though. I think that's hmm. one of the themes that we could probably, you know, you look at Reservoir Dogs. In the end, everybody bites it. You know, even... Uh, yep. Uh, Tim Roth's character bites, you know, for for lying, for being, you know, false. Everybody kind of pays for their crimes sooner mm-hmm. or later. And even for Kill Bill, you know, he's always talked about doing a third film where the daughter of one of the characters she kills comes back right. after her. And even yeah, where Vivica uh, Fox's daughter comes back. Yeah. So I think I think he does have a an odd kind of that internal sense of justice, you know, kind of a brutal, a medieval sense of justice. Yeah. I I love it. I mean, I really do like the dynamics of the relationship between how the dynamics of the relationship between Butch and Marcellus change throughout the story. Although I'm really wondering how Marcellus is going to feel when he finds out that Butch killed Vincent. (laughs) Because Butch doesn't, Marcellus doesn't know that at this point when he lets Butch go. Um, Anyway, kind of interesting. I don't think it really matters, though, because he basically saved his life. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is another part at the end of this story. This is where we get non-practical music, which I think is really interesting. This is like the only time in the movie where it's you've got uh, you've got Bruce Willis on the motorcycle picking up uh, Fabian, and they put non-practical music on the scene as he's driving away. And th- I think this is the only real time where you can't attribute it to being inside somebody's head. Or baby being on the radio because there's no radio on the motorcycle. This is like the only time when there's not practical music. So. Also, the gimp scene when they say bring out the gimp. 
Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the whole it's actually the whole thing when he goes up and when he escapes and then he goes up to the pawn shop and he's going through all the weapons there's not practical music playing behind that and then uh and then yeah when he's on the motorcycle riding away so it becomes a little more cinematic at that point which i think is interesting let's go quickly to the bonnie situation um bonnie situation is a comedy yeah this is like the laugh out loud portion of <laughs> There's so many lines, like when he's washing his hands, and Vincent goes, "You saw me wash them," and he goes, "I saw, I watched you get them wet." <laughs> like that is so funny. I love it, man. This is this is like it's great to end on a comedy like this, and it's a brutal comedy. There's so much like like serious crap going on, but like it's so funny at the same time. I love it. Well, and even the the wolf showing up, he's a man in a tux, like right. He comes from some party, and he just—I mean, it's a—it's a—it's a monkey suit, you know. It's just this right. goofy last kind of when they, you know, they're bringing the story kind of back around. <laughs> yeah, it's—it's. It's, uh, the funny thing about the wolf that I love is that he was at a party at eight in the morning at a hotel <laughs> in a tuxedo. But you know, this is what Vincent says when he talks about Amsterdam at the start of the movie. He's like, you know, it's the same. But it's the little things that <laughs> just great, catch you. And I think that is kind of like all this, like, why is Marvin in the car? It's the little things. It's They don't even explain it before they just shoot him. Like, where are they taking him? They have the suitcase. What more is there? But he's apparently friends with Jules, <laughs> sort of. I don't know. I don't know. I think he's just kind of a legend, but the funny thing, like, there's 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 things that border on, like, broad slapstick comedy. Like, there's the thing where he's like, it's 30 minutes away, I'll be there in 10. And then there's the line at the, the title at the bottom of the screen that says 9 minutes and 37 seconds later. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's like a screwball comedy thing. Um, but it works. I mean, it's great. I love how he takes us on this ride. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I just love the whole thing. Like, I... <laughs> Like when Vincent, there when the wolf comes and the Vince and Vincent is like, I can feel your look, Jules. I can feel your look. Like it's just hilarious shit. I love it. Or can you? Um, you could say please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it really does follow this kind of plot device in each of the in each of the stories. So I would say that the first story is kind of a. It's almost like a romance because they're dating, but they can't date. It's almost like a unrequited love and they really do make a connection i think at jack rabbit slims i've kind uh, of thought about that through the whole like i was wondering if your crazy fan theory was gonna be that this is a romance because uh-huh. even the even the butch and marcellus wallace like he saves him you know it's <laughs> just this this weird like kind of that's kind of like the bromance of it you know they're tangled yeah. together and they you know it's like every romance novel you know they start out hating each other and at the end you know it works out and it doesn't it's this is the close as close as tarantino can get it's kind of these well i I would say the way that i see it is i think that the first one the first story with with vincent and mia is a romance it literally ends with like him almost in a cupid like fashion stabbing her through the heart (laughs) um and then the second one, I think, is more of a... It's really a drama. It's like a morality play around, like, what what is justice? What Who is your enemy? Like, it's this 
big tension in it's very it's pretty dramatic in my in my viewing and then the third one the bonnie situation is basically a comedy so it's like we have a romance a drama and a comedy all packaged into one one movie with a bunch of characters kind of roaming around on the but sides it's, it's sandwiched by the true love between pumpkin and honey bunny there so it is, man. Two for romance. I think it's. I think this is Quentin Tarantino's romance. <laughs> this is his romance movie. Then they all follow a similar plot device of you. You. You get endeared to the characters. Then there a huge tension arises, and then there's the kind of fallout or the denouement. It really each one follows that classic three act structure, but. Uh, you know, you, you could look at this movie. You could say, "Yeah, it's all nonlinear and it's kind of all over the place. It doesn't really follow a structure." Each of these stories follows a kind of picture perfect three act structure. They just all happen to weave together in in different ways, but they really are kind of classic three act three act uh, stories, which I, I find I find uh, really really nice. It's like Quintertino, you know, establishes himself as kind of an, an out there nonlinear director, but he's actually just using the techniques. He's just moving some shit around a little bit. Um, well, and that's one of the, a, it makes it a little more accessible. One of the recommendations I heard was, you know, if you, if you didn't like a movie, it's really easy to just think, Oh, here's a better movie. And you describe it, but try editing a movie differently to make it better. Take what they've shot and how do you move it around to make it a better movie? And I think yeah. Tarantino, he's shifted these three stories, which I think would be entertaining, but not, you know, it's a synergy there. When you've tied them together so tightly, it makes it bigger than the sum of the parts. I think it makes such a, a more interesting story. And I don't think it's a novelty just yeah. based on, you know, I think moving forward, I think he kind of gets a, a grasp on it and he uses he's better able to do flashbacks and things, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't tell yep. as much of a, he doesn't, I think go back to this well so deeply, but I think he learns what he learns from each film, you know, reservoir dogs. He really kind of figured out his dialogue. And then this one, he learns how to kind of cut and move pieces around, you know, having Vincent die in the middle and then come back at the end is, <laughs> I know it's a little jarring. It's jarring, but it's, you know, thinking back, I, there was at some point probably on like my third or fourth viewing when I was younger where I was like, that tells you where it is in the movie. But Mm -hmm. you know, on those first washings or two, it's it, you, how much stock did you really put in? You're like, Oh, he dies. But then he comes back at the end and who cares? Because it makes such that ending scene is such a perfect ending, especially (laughs) with having it relate to the opening scene, which, you know, after two and a half hours, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that was going on. Yeah, well, if you want to look at it from a three-act structure standpoint, yes, each of the stories follow a three-act structure. But if we look at those endear, endear to the characters, build the tension, and then uh, resolution, the three stories follow that as well. Really, the Mia and Vincent story is about, if you look at it as a romance, it's about endear yourself to the characters. The second one, the morality play, the drama, is the highest tension, I would say, in the film. Uh, this is, but that's my opinion. And then the third one is a little more light, and it allows for a little bit of a soft landing at the end. So not only do the stories themselves follow a three X structure, but the movie follows a three X structure in that sense. And just being able to tell a nonlinear story—I mean, just the technique yeah. of it—is it's like Frank Lloyd Wright. Everybody knows his buildings are great. 
what gets missed a lot is that his buildings, he did that in 1920. Like that wasn't a thing that people <laughs> did. And it yeah. seems so less impressive without that kind of context around it. It's like, oh, nothing looked like this. I so. also look at the influence of this movie and, you know, I can't I can't speak for like people like the Coen brothers. But you look at the movies that the Coen brothers made before this movie. You're looking at things like the Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, you're looking at Barton Fink. After this movie came out, they made The Big Lebowski and Fargo, which I feel like are have interestingly similar tones in some ways to Pulp Fiction, in that they have a big swath of characters. Uh, nobody's super, uh, super good, but they're all kind of. I guess, I guess, uh, in Fargo, there's some really good people, but but they're all very, <laughs> very interesting characters, and they're all kind of getting thrown into these balls together, and they're getting all mangled together. And it's very, very similar to Pulp Fiction in that way. So I do think that you see this influence. And not only your story storytelling, of course, we can think about movies like Memento. Uh, there's, you know, it, it's become a device that is, that is commonplace almost in today's world. Um, but this, this movie had a big, big influence on, on a lot of film. Uh, and I think that at the, at the very least, it needs to be recognized for that. All right, man. Well, that's. I think that's our time. Um, anything else about Pulp Fiction? Oh, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. We'll give, we'll give it a 7 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's a great movie to just turn on on a Saturday afternoon and just watch the whole thing. It's good. Yeah, it's, I, it's one that I will be, I'm, you know, going to have a kid in February and it's going to be years before I can do, you know, the like, because, you know, you think about what your parents tried to introduce right? you to their interests in movies. And especially like, I'm, how do you, you want to show your kid this movie and be like, this is great storytelling. This is a great film. But like, it, when, when do you yeah. show this kind of movie? When to do your you show child? your kids Pulp Fiction? <laughs> Well, let us know on the forums. Go to uh, forums.ballboob.com. You can check on the direct uh, forums there. The The link is on the right side of the page. There is going to be a forum now for Jackie Brown, which is our next film. We'll be talking about that next week. Uh, so watch Jackie Brown this week. Let us know what you think. Uh, you can also write us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, this is Direct. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.